Hello, family. It is such a joy. I want to thank Becca and Rob for the privilege of spending time with you. It's good to be back in Minnesota. I'd love to spend a few minutes at the very beginning sharing with you a bit of my journey from atheism to faith in Christ. And then I'm going to introduce you to my wonderful family via a quote for each one of them. And then I'll share with you the message that's in my heart for today. Now my parents teased me that the very first word that ever came out of my mouth wasn't mama or dada. They say the very first word was why. (laughs) And so evidently I have been asking questions since I could speak and to be honest, not much has changed. As a young woman though, unanswered and unanswerable questions led me to a conclusion that there was no God. I sincerely believed that God hadn't created man. It seemed fairly obvious to me that man had created God because there were just so many questions that were never going to be answered by science, by reason, even by experience. So it was understandable, I thought, that individuals and entire cultures would create mythical beings, call him God, call them gods, stuff them in the gaps, and calm your fears. As a young atheist, I considered myself a realist who preferred unanswered questions over fairy tales. I wasn't angry at the time. I wasn't trying to start an argument at the time. Atheism seemed to be the most logical choice given what could be known and what could never be known. I walked through some darker years where some anger began to gather around the edges of my atheism, and that's when I started to argue. That's when I started to debate. That's when I started to become extremely annoyed with anyone who had the audacity to suggest the existence of a god or gods that held all power. And yet when I took a realistic look around the planet, It sure didn't seem to me as though they were using that power to prevent pain. Now, God interrupted my atheistic worldview through two gifts. First, an unlikely friendship, and second, an unexpected encounter. The unlikely friendship was with two precious young women who were passionately in love with Jesus and passionately committed to being my friend whether I liked it or not. (laughs) All of our discussions would end in debate and all of our debates would end in their tears. But when they started to cry, their concluding statement was actually more powerful for me than all their previous arguments. Through their tears, they would look at me and they would say, I don't have an answer to your question, Alicia, but I know that Jesus lives. The power of humility and sincerity. I have yet to meet a former atheist who says that they came to Jesus because they lost a debate. (laughs) But when you can combine humility with proximity, that's a hard thing to turn away from. They gave me the gift of sincere friendship. And that opened the way for me to say yes 
to the second thing, which was an unexpected encounter. A friend's mother kept inviting me to church, and this woman would not take no. She just asked me over and over and over again. And she also decided not to go for my head, she decided to go for my heart. And Becca, she would say the most ridiculous things. She would say things like, my Jesus knows your name. (laughs) He's counted every tear you've ever shed. I knew that there was absolutely no way I was ever gonna get this woman to stop inviting me to church until I finally said yes. So I surprised her one day. I said, all right, let's go. I will go with you to church and that'll be the end of it. So I went with this woman into this itty bitty little church filled with a bunch of itty bitty little people. And the average age in the house was somewhere around 857. (laughs) So I need you to picture angry atheist on the back row, and you need to know that I was expecting nothing from this experience. I had not had some disturbing dream that when I awoke from it, it invited me to rethink my life. (laughs) I wasn't suddenly questioning my belief system. I was more certain than I had ever been as an atheist. In the same way, I was not drunk, I wasn't high, I wasn't in the pit of despair, life was good, I was not there to find a God, I was there to get rid of a Christian. And so, (laughs) I'm in the back row, expecting nothing. Now what I didn't know is that these dear people were broken hearted. They were going through an extreme crisis as a small community. And all of a sudden, it was on cue and somewhat creepy, they all stood up, and then they began to sing from their broken hearts. An atheist on the back row started to feel something. I started to experience something, a something that lasted the entire service, an hour and a half or two hours. It was as though all of a sudden, waters opened up above me. And I felt these crystal clear waters surging through me. It was an extraordinary encounter. Now, I didn't pass out. (laughs) I was still present, but I was no longer alone. This presence, I could feel a presence actually breaking chains off my mind. I could feel this presence welling up in and then washing through my very soul. And in the middle of that encounter, I knew a couple of things. I knew I was wrong. (laughs) There is a God. There is a God and he is washing over me. And I knew the name of this God like I knew my own name. Now I had studied different world religions because it only seemed fair to give everybody equal time in debate. And so on an intellectual level, I would have been open to any name, but there was only one, because there is only one. The name of Jesus sounding in my heart. And I had a choice to make. And in that moment, I thought, this is going to change everything. There is nothing that this will not touch. But I have never knowingly lied to myself before, and I'm not going to start today. This is real. And I'm going to have to commit intellectual and emotional suicide to deny how real this is. I refuse to. Jesus, yes. Whatever the question is, (laughs) 
The answer is yes. And Jesus, the God who pursues even those who deny him, he carried me over into this mystery. It felt like a rainbow stood still. Can I say that? It felt like all of a sudden, that thing that I had thought probably never existed was right in front of me. And Jesus has captivated my interest and captivated my soul. And he has flooded my life with meaning and with presence. Presence can dissolve skepticism. Presence can dissolve cynicism at depths that debate and even the best of apologetics can never even begin to touch. God's presence rescued me, precious Jesus. And he began to fill my life through both joy and pain with more treasures. So allow me to take a few moments now and introduce you to my most precious treasures here on earth, my family. Oh, there they are. Now that good-looking man, his name is Barry J. Sholey. We just celebrated an anniversary. It's number 289. We celebrate by the month, and you can do the math. Oh, Barry has so many quotables I'd love to share. I'll share with you, though, one of the first that I hear repeated from his mouth every time we play ping pong again. Barry and I met at a retreat, and we decided to play ping pong together. Now, I have been playing ping pong since I was knee-high to a grasshopper with a daddy who didn't throw any games. And so while I was across the table from this man about to play ping pong with him, I thought, Alicia, be nice. <laughs> you do not want to entirely humiliate him in front of all of his friends because you just may want to marry the boy. And so we decided, we played this little game of ping pong, tiny little game of ping pong. We talked about, I have no, no idea what, he won. And I thought, that's quite enough. And so I rolled up my sleeves and I put my hair in a ponytail and I said, would you like to play again? And he said, oh, why, yes. And so this girl played ping pong. I mean, all the English, all the nets, all the spin, all the corner, everything. We tied, he went ahead, we tied, he went ahead, we tied, he went ahead, he won. So I'm looking at him across the table, I said, you're good. <laughs> and he said, thank you, you're good too. I'm like, yeah, thanks. And then he said this, here it is, the quotable. He said, would you like me to play the next game with my right hand? The boy had beaten me with his non-dominant left hand. I hurled the ball at him, and inside I thought, he's got spunk, I like it. He's my amazing husband. God has blessed our love through the miracle of adoption with three incredible children who have glorious strengths that sing a delightful duet with special needs that range from autism to in utero drug exposure. Our eldest is Jonathan. He is now 17. Oh, he has so many quotables as well. But here's one. It, he asked me around the age of nine or 10, he said, Mommy, are you gonna die one day? I said, yes, baby, I will die one day. He said, huh? And he walked around in circles for quite some time, and then he stopped, he said, okay, it's all right if you die one day. And it's okay even if Jesus takes you to heaven, but I'm gonna be the one who carries you there. That's my golden-hearted eldest. Our angel in the middle, precious Kiona, she is 11 years old. She is liquid sunshine. I call her a porta party. 
she's absolutely delightful. Kiona is quotable on a daily basis, but my favorite is when she was five, she walked in the room and she said, Mama, if a demon ever comes into our house, I said, I'm sorry, could you back up? What did you say? She said, Mama, if a demon ever comes into our house, I'm gonna look at it in the eye and I'm gonna say, showtime. That is my princess warrior. And that brings us to precious Louis. Louis is a builder. He is a sweet, sweet spirited boy and he is my traveling buddy this week. So you may see him somewhere in the, in the corridors out there. Precious boy, here's a quotable from Louis. Holding a broken train. Mommy, my toy is broken. <sighs> we have to take it back to China. And then he said, but we can take my bike because I ride really, really fast. So, that is my precious family and they are praying for us right now. Around 10 years after Jesus interrupted my atheistic existence, he called me away to my very first year-long sabbatical. And that sabbatical began with a nine-day prayer retreat at a desert retreat center in the middle of Arizona. Nine days, I'm walking around the desert with tears in my eyes, grieving over something I couldn't even name. Have you been there? Aching with something that's just too deep for words. I kept going in my mind through that checklist we all have about how to stay fresh in our faith. Reading the word, check. Community, check. Worship, check. Witness, check. Repentance, check, 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 check. And all the checks, kept helping me help everybody else grow. But inside, I was drier than the desert I was walking in. Now, prior to that time, I had spent the majority of my study energy focused upon Jesus' teachings and his resurrection. But there in the desert, my heart was more drawn toward his sufferings, toward his crucifixion. I spent hours in front of each station of the cross that had been carved out in that desert retreat. And hour upon hour, I became awestruck with a choice Jesus made over and over and over again. At every single point of pain, misunderstood, misrepresented, mocked, beaten, ultimately murdered, at every single point of pain, Jesus could have ended it with one word, enough. But instead, because of his love for us, at every single point of pain, Jesus instead chose a holy posture of what the world would call weakness. He chose, this was entirely volitional. There was nothing remotely passive about Jesus' actions. This was no default. He chose, he willed, this posture of holy weakness and extraordinary strength. And as I sat there in that garden, I realized that Jesus' true strength 
was not most manifest in his ability to walk on water and calm storms. Jesus' true strength was not most manifest in his ability to deliver the demonized and minister to the multitudes. Jesus' true strength was revealed in his willingness to empty himself, as we read in Philippians 2, to empty himself, or as the NIV says, to become nothing and to die. This Jesus-style strength to become nothing. And I also realized in that desert that though I possess sufficient strength to exhaust myself researching and studying and mentoring multitudes, I did not possess that strength. I did not possess sufficient strength to empty myself, sufficient strength to be nothing. And I began to wonder where and how does that kind of Jesus style indestructible strength grow? The kind of strength that helps you live for something greater, the kind of strength that can keep you focused even in times of pain. Well, God began to answer that burning question in my heart shortly after by leading me to study a familiar passage with a fresh perspective. That study captured my attention for 10 years and eventually overflowed into the book that Becca and I decided I would speak upon today, Anonymous. Anonymous reveals and then it invites us to relish the surprising birthplace of Jesus-style indestructible strength. Anonymous takes us right to the heart of those seasons we would rather avoid, those seasons where we feel hidden. Have you ever felt hidden? Webster defines hidden as out of sight, and not in the 70s version, out of sight, not readily apparent, concealed, obscure, unexplained, undisclosed. Have you ever moved to a new environment? where no one knew your name, or at least not how to pronounce it properly. <laughs> no one had any idea what dreams ignited your soul. Have you ever shifted to a different season and found yourself moving from standing as a leader to sitting as a learner again? From being on the court to being on the bench? Have you ever transitioned? Have you ever retired from a position, resigned, a title, and find, found yourself, instead of being sought out, being sort of left out, instead of being consulted, now you feel like perhaps you're not even really considered. It's in these hidden spaces, these anonymous seasons where we're more familiar with being invisible than being applauded. It feels like somebody pressed the pause button on all of our potential, like all of our dreams went into hibernation like some bear in winter, and as the time goes on, we begin to wonder if spring is ever gonna come again. In these hidden seasons, we feel like when people look at us, they just see the tip of the iceberg of who we really are and all that's in our soul. Now, scientists tell us that only an eighth to a tenth of an iceberg is visible. Over 90% of most icebergs are submerged in the unseen. And scientists also tell us that because of their enormous mass, that with that proportion, apart from global warming, 
icebergs are virtually indestructible. So an equation begins to emerge. 10% visible plus 90% unseen can yield an indestructible life. The most influential life in all of history reflects this iceberg equation. Only 10%, three years of his life, are visible. 90%, almost 30 years of his life, are relatively undocumented. We know almost nothing about them. And all of his life was and is absolutely indestructible. We see Jesus' birth, and then there's hidden days. We find him circumcised on the eighth day, and then there's hidden months. We see him visited by wise men around the age of two, and then there's hidden years. We find him again at the age of 12 asking insightful questions in the temple. And then there's almost two entirely hidden decades until 30 years of relative anonymity are shattered and Jesus steps out of hiddenness into debated and documented, celebrated and scrutinized history. And yet when you and I say something like, I want to be like Jesus, We are not saying, oh God, would you grant me the privilege of living 90% of my life hidden in obscurity, are we? That's not what we mean. <laughs> when we say, I want to be like Jesus, we are not talking about 90% of his life of hiddenness. We're not talking about his hidden years, we're talking about his visible years with a few notable exceptions. <laughs> we are not saying, God, would you allow me to subject my body, mind, and spirit to an extended wilderness temptation. God, would you allow me to be misunderstood, misrepresented, mocked, and ultimately murdered at the hands of hateful sinners? When we say, I want to be like Jesus, we are talking about his character and his authority. How we long for Jesus' character and his authority to radiate through our lives and awaken a waiting world. But Jesus' character and Jesus' authority, they aren't isolated entities that we can order online at a discount. Jesus' character and Jesus' authority, they come with Jesus' life, 90% of which was lived in quiet anonymity. Why? Why? Why would Father God wrap the glory of heaven in a plain paper bag, announce the birth of this precious treasure with an elite angelic choir, albeit in front of a somewhat less than internationally influential band of shepherds, <laughs> and then tuck his son away in obscurity for three decades. We would have never let the Son of God live in hiddenness for 30 years. Every breath would have been monitored by the brightest minds in medical research. Every action would have been captured by the media and analyzed by psychologists. <laughs> Every word would have been recorded by historians and weighed by theologians and printed on tastefully designed brochures, hidden? No way. Because we tend to only hide things that we're ashamed of. We tend to only hide things that we think aren't worthy of anyone's attention. We tend to only hide things when we think they're not ready and perhaps they never will be. And so when you and I are reading this precious word, and there are these enormous gaps in Jesus' story, 
we're apt to think, ah, that's too bad. I really would have liked to know a whole lot more about those first 30 years, but at least the biblical writers recorded the most important parts of Jesus's life. Now, I believe, I truly believe, that this is God's voice. I believe that the Holy Spirit has stood watch over his voice. And I believe that everything in here is needful for our lives. But does that mean that what was undocumented was unimportant? Because we give so much more validity to things that are visible than things that are invisible. It's easy for us to underestimate the critical importance of the 30 hidden years that supported Jesus' three visible years of ministry. But with Jesus' life and with ours, we cannot mistake unseen for unimportant. Consider the examples God has given us in nature. Think of how life begins. Life begins in the dark warmth of a womb. And there, God conceals from our curiosity his most mysterious act of creation. Now, are the intricacies of that amazing process in the womb visible to the naked human eye? No. No, the intricacies are hidden. So since those months are unseen, are they unimportant? Not remotely. They're quite literally formative And when they're prematurely interrupted, we all ache with the tragedy. A child in the womb, think of a seed in the soil. Before a gardener can taste a plant's fruit, she has to tenderly, she has to strategically attend to its root. So you might say that a plant's birth begins with its burial. A gardener commits an unremarkable seed to the silence of the soil, and there it sits, unseen, uncelebrated, hidden, and everything in that plant's future rests upon that seed's ability to send out roots in unseen places and reach for the sun. So as with a child in the womb, as with a seed in the soil, God's unanticipated move of hiding Jesus gave Jesus protected and undisturbed space to be and to become. If we look at Jesus' example, we see that God does not hide us to punish us. He hides us to protect us. And further, I suggest that these hidden years are the birthplace of Jesus-style, indestructible strength. Luke floods Jesus' hidden years with meaning. In Luke 2, verse 52, what was happening in hidden years, Luke describes, and Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom and in stature. He grew in favor with man and in favor with God. The only way that word is elsewhere translated is increased. What was happening in hidden years, Jesus was growing. What's happening in our hidden places? Jesus is growing. Jesus-style, indestructible strength. And if we had four hours, which I think I only have three and a half tonight, but if we had four, (laughs) 
Oh, friends, I would love to share with you some of the treasures that grow in hidden places. We would look at beautiful things like the anchor of his word and trust in his timing, an accurate portrait of God, an unshakable identity. Oh, so many treasures grow in those hidden places. But tonight, what I'd like to invite you for the next few moments together is to take a walk with me. And we're gonna walk with Jesus at the very end of his hidden years. And we're gonna walk with him all the way to the Jordan, from the dusty streets of Nazareth to the waters of the Jordan, because there is something Father God wants us to hear him say tonight. There is something that could change everything for you. Jesus' hidden years were spent, as you know, in the unlikely town of Nazareth. And if we were to ask a devout Judean Jew at that time what they thought of Nazareth, we would probably get a collection of rather unfavorable adjectives, something like spiritually insignificant or <laughs> small or scorned. Nazareth was not the town of kings and prophets. It was an agricultural community that sat between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. It was just outside of a traffic-laden trade route, the Via Marie, that ran from Egypt to Damascus. Nazareth itself was a southern town in the region of Galilee, and Galilee was an economically thriving district under Roman rule. So, let's think about Jesus walking in Nazareth of Galilee. He would have been familiar with farming and fishing, trade and commerce, Greek and Roman thought. He would have been exposed to a wide variety of cultures and a wide variety of languages. And we would probably treasure that kind of diversity. But that was exactly the concern of the Southern religious leaders. They were concerned that all that exposure to diversity had diluted the doctrine of their Northern cousin's faith. Now hopefully the good folks of Nazareth held a slightly higher opinion of their own city and region, but even they did not expect a prophet, let alone a Messiah, to come from Jesus' family. <laughs> now every time I share on Anonymous, there is always at least one in the room. I won't ask you to raise your hand, we won't embarrass you, but you know how when we graduated from high school they gave out those most likely to succeed awards? Do you remember? I, I won't even tell you what I was nominated for as an angry argumentative atheist, but but there was always that person, and they had this annoyingly consistent excellence or <laughs> some nice nicefulness that just made them obviously destined for greatness. Well, evidently the good folks of Nazareth didn't nominate Jesus for this most likely to succeed award because even when he shows up in his visible years with miracles behind his name now, they don't look at Jesus and say, oh, there's our kid. Oh man, I had my eye on that boy ever since. There was always something special about that Jesus. What did they say? They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother's name Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So Jesus grew up as an uncelebrated boy from an unroyal family in the unliked city of an unrespected region, which is frankly bad news if you're planning on running for political office. 
But it's good news if your job description is to embrace hiddenness. Frustrating if you crave fame. Freeing if you can value learning without paparazzi. Now somehow, somewhere in the thick of these long, undocumented decades, Jesus awakened to whom he really was. It seems at least by the age of 12, he knew that God was quite literally his father. None of us could fathom. None of us could fathom what on earth that must have been like. But again, picture Jesus in his hidden years, God's purpose, power, passion, promise, pounding in his heart. He knew what he was called to do. He knew he was on a mission. He knew that it was world size. So picture Jesus in his hidden years, knowing that his hand had the power to heal. Picture him walking by children, ill and sick. Jesus knowing that God was literally his father, knowing that his conception was miraculous. Picture him having to sit silently when people perhaps mocked his mother's past. Picture Jesus, all wisdom, growing in his soul, listening to people, some of whom preached what they did not live. Picture Jesus, knowing that one day his voice would summon the dead. Picture Jesus in his hidden years attending funerals, perhaps even the funeral of his dad. Why not now? is a cry that rises from hearts in their hidden ears. I could do something now. I can make a difference now. And God says to us, like Jesus might have heard, not yet, my daughter. Not yet, my son. No, we're not there yet. Now, you know, hearing God's not yet can be excruciating, can't it? When we have God-sized dreams in our soul, we feel all bottled up like we're just going to explode under the pressure. And we wonder when then, if not now, when? During Jesus' hidden years, he submitted to a seemingly delayed destiny. God's purpose, power, passion, promise, pounded in his heart, but he wasn't free to proclaim it or explain it or pursue it. And people only saw the tip of the iceberg of what was growing in Jesus. They could have never imagined the indestructible greatness growing just underneath the surface of Jesus's unapplauded, underestimated life. Now friends, what would that grow in someone? What's it growing in us? What's growing in that gap between what you thought your life would look like and what it looks like now? What's growing in the gap between what you thought you were called to do as a child and how life has played out for you? What's growing in the gap between what you think you're capable of and what others are giving you the opportunity to do God's pauses can seem perplexing, can't they? And when they extend beyond what we can explain, say, three days, <laughs> we often begin to spiral 
into self-doubt and into second-guessing. But in anonymous seasons, we can hold tightly to a truth that may have strengthened young Jesus, that God is neither careless nor causeless with how he spends our lives. And when he calls a soul simultaneously to greatness and obscurity, the fruit, if we wait for it, just might literally feed the planet. So one day, Jesus hears an answer from Father God. Instead of not yet, he hears, and today's the day. And when we look at the parallel accounts, it seems as though Jesus walked alone the 30 or 60 miles to the Jordan, his dusty feet walking to the waters of the Jordan. He must have been filled with thought. He'd been waiting for 30 years. On the other side is cousin John. <laughs> John's dressed in camel's hair. He's a very organic, a somewhat odd, and strangely endearing fellow. And diplomacy is not at the center of John's gifting cluster at all. John stands in the middle of the Jordan, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So since ceremonial cleansing was not unusual in that day, when people wanted to convert to Judaism, they would undergo this ritual bath, which was symbolic of washing away their pagan past. But John was inviting people who were already committed to the faith into the waters of baptism. And so when they stepped into the water, they were saying, I'm a sinner. May God forgive me. May he cleanse me and prepare me to receive the long-awaited Messiah. No, what they didn't know is that their long-awaited Messiah was also waiting for 30 years. <laughs> so imagine Jesus coming upon this scene. Oh, purpose, promise, power, passion. He's been waiting. And now it's time. He comes onto the Jordan River, and there are hundreds, maybe thousands. Some came to scoff. Most came to seek. The messianic anticipation, people think the Messiah is just about to come. John stands up and says, repent, I don't know about you, but I think after waiting for 30 years, if I had come upon that scene, I would have simply exploded. I'm here! <laughs> oh, he finally let me come. Let me tell you everything that's in my heart and what we need to do, but not Jesus. He quietly makes his way through the crowd, steps his dusty feet into the waters of the Jordan. And everybody gasps and says, oh, there he is, our long-awaited Messiah. I don't think so. I think they said, hey, look, George, there's another repentant sinner. You know, that's 52 since noon, and that is not a bad day. <laughs> there's no parade. There is no drum roll. There's not even an explanation for his love for us. Jesus allowed himself to be associated with sinners, and only John the Baptist knew the truth about the absolutely sinless one that was standing in front of him. Jesus possessed this incredible strength that grows in hidden years, a strength to not make a name for yourself, a strength to trust God with his timing, a strength to make peace with God's pace, a strength to appear to be less 
in order to be able to do more. And as John's hands press Jesus under the waters, the sky splits, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and Father God has something he wants to say. Out of all the things in all the world, we read in Matthew chapter three, verse 17, that the voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Out of all the things in all the world, Father God could have said, what he shouted from the heaven over that moment in Jesus' life was not directional. Go here, child. It wasn't instructional, and while you're there, do this. This is entirely relational. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. In other translations, delighted. Dick Schroeder is the very first person I ever heard say and draw attention to the fact that this shout of affirmation over Jesus' life was spoken before Jesus ever did anything for which we call him Savior. True. This heavenly affirmation was spoken before the timeless teachings, before the dramatic deliverances, before the many miracles. This heavenly affirmation was spoken over Jesus and who he had become in his hidden years. Because in anonymous, uncelebrated, unapplauded places, Jesus had been making quiet choices. And those choices had clustered and gathered momentum. And they now would become the great influence upon all that we applaud in the church. It grew in hidden years. And here's the glorious thought. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I inherit the heavenly shout. Through the cross, we inherit that heavenly shout of affirmation. And we inherit it before we get that promotion or even get out of bed. We inherit it before we make the news or even make dinner. We inherit this affirmation, not because of any stunning accomplishment, but simply because through the cross of our Jesus, we now belong to God. He says over you, this is my daughter. This is my girl. This is my son. This is the one that I love. With this one, look at this one. I am well pleased. We inherit that through the cross. Is there really anything in the whole world that we need to hear more than that? What can mankind's acceptance add to God's? What can mankind's applause add to God's love for you? Friends, I would like to conclude by reading to you a part of chapter 14, and then I'm going to close in prayer. 
And while I read, it's a couple of pages, I'm gonna invite you to rest in God's presence. You can close your eyes, you can kick off your shoes, you can relax, you can do anything but snore as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) And you can snore, we will love you. (laughs) This was written before my third son was born, which will make sense here in just a moment. Chapter 14, what news? God is pleased with my hidden years. He does not view anonymous seasons as boring and unfortunate preludes to be rushed through quickly so I can move on to some other season that's more productive and exciting. And though like any parent, I'm sure God finds joy in every season of our lives, it will not surprise me if in the end we learn that he enjoyed our hidden years the most. They seem less cluttered with the glittery stuff that distracts us from his face. My children are in their hidden years. They are dancing blissfully in almost complete anonymity. With the exception of a few other privileged souls, my husband and I are their primary audience in how we treasure the show. Our son's belly laugh, if bottled, could further the cause of world peace. His compassion regularly causes my eyes to leak. Jonathan sends every single penny he has to the poor children because they don't have milk or bananas or computers. And it's still very hard for him to understand why all the planet's orphans cannot come live with us in our house. He's concerned for the world, but without apology, he adores his mama. Once when I was in bed looking pretty puny, he came into my room holding a glass. Taking a drink, he then offered the glass to me and said, here, mommy, drink after me so you can catch my healthy Our daughter is liquid sunshine. She's brilliant, beautiful, and dramatic. She gets it from her daddy. In a moment of complete silence at a solemn ceremony that was being projected on a big screen, Kiona shouted, look, I am on TV. (laughs) She feels deeply, tells you about it loudly, and gets over it quickly. And by nature, she's a nurturer. Following my unexpected surgery, Kiona would daily ask, mommy, are you better yet? And then proceed to comb my hair with her toothbrush and smash gobs of Vaseline between my toes. (laughs) I will never forget the first time after that surgery when I was able to walk down the stairs on my own. While I sat at the bottom catching my breath, two-year-old Kiona came up and asked if she could hold me. And then with her beautiful arms wrapped around me, she whispered, Mommy, I am so proud of you. Now, you didn't know all that, did you? Nope, and that's okay. These moments have taken place during hidden years that only a few hearts have been graced to observe. As far as the world is concerned, my children are living in anonymity. Jonathan is yet to realize his unusual blend of exceptional abilities. Kiona is still unaware of her striking gift of influence. They are currently unable to take a stand against injustice, research cures for cancer, or even tie their own shoes. They are hidden, and they are the delight of our hearts. My husband and I treasure beyond words our private viewing of Jonathan and Kiona and now Louis' hidden years. Our front row seats in their lives are priceless. We are their greatest fans, and for the moment, they are not looking for any others. We're enough, and how nice it is to be enough. I wonder if in my own life, God feels like I believe he is enough. Soon we'll have competition. Soon others will be impressed by Jonathan's genius and dazzled by Kiona's inner and outer beauty. Soon my children will have to navigate through praise and applause, criticism and rejection. 
Soon the room's gonna be filled with flattering admirers and unwelcome detractors, but my hope is that our presence, and more importantly, the presence of Jesus that we keep drawing their attention to, that that presence will keep them. God will always be there on the front row of their lives, applauding wildly, applauding wildly. Friends, tonight, there are some of us in this place and we've just been waiting, waiting for someone to stand up and start clapping. We've been waiting for someone to speak words, whether a doctor to say healed, whether a someone to say, I want to spend my life with you, whether a mother or a father to finally say, I am so proud of you. Some of us have been aching for a little child to say, Mommy, we've been aching for words. Can I tell you, I hope you hear them. I do. But whether or not those words are spoken over your life or whether or not those words are silent, there is one. Your creator, the lover of your heart and your soul who handcrafted you. And he is sitting on the front row of your life applauding wildly. You already have his attention. And the question is, is it enough? Is it enough? You know, there's some days when I don't feel like it is, but I want it to be. I want it to be enough. Because when we decide that his voice and his attention is enough, it opens up opportunities of knowing God that right now we can't even fathom. I want to invite you to pray and to consider this question. God's attention, can I choose that it is enough? Savior, Jesus, your eyes are always upon us. Your love-filled eyes are always upon us. You are with us in a way we can't even understand. God, I pray all throughout this room and for all whom are listening that you would draw attention to that aching part of their heart that's waiting for someone to stand up and applaud, the aching part of their heart that's been waiting for words and that you would speak your word. This is my child whom I love. That you would speak your affirmation with them I am well pleased. I ask that your voice would plunge the depths and the ache within us and that you would breathe hope and life, not that comes from something we'll accomplish someday, not that comes from something people will applaud us for someday, but hope and life that comes from you and what you've already accomplished for us on a cross. We are loved. We are freed. We are accepted. And I pray that your heavenly shout would saturate each heart and each mind. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask. Amen. Amen.